it's, uh, it, it is a bit of a departure for Gresham College, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be an interesting departure. When I tell people I'm a film and media historian, I usually get several standard reactions. One is, uh, what's your favorite film? Um, you've got to be ready for that. The other, of course, is a kind of intake of breath as if you're suspected of misleading the young by taking them away from useful subjects. Media studies has come in for a lot of stick in recent years. Much talk about it not being a proper subject. It has actually just made it. Film and media studies is now a part of the next RAE, for better or worse, in its own right. So we are making progress academically. But the question still hangs over the subject area. What's it really about? And what I'm going to try and do is lift a little corner of the field for you this evening and hopefully stay more or less on time uh, and show you something of what I find exciting and interesting if we look back before the era of film as such. Because there's a great deal of screen entertainment long before there are moving images on the screen. Um, I did a television series um, some years ago in the 1990s and I described it when I was pitching it to the BBC as cinema from 1800 to 1913. They looked a bit askance and said, but did it start that early? Yes, it did. And here is um, an extraordinary image which I never tire of putting in front of people. I'm, I'm sure many of you know it. It used to be quite a rare image but it's become a very common one. In fact, if you look on the internet, you'll find there are many thousands of iterations of it. It's Punch's Almanac for 1879, which means it came out in 1878, at the very end of 1878. It was drawn, in fact, by uh, Gerald de Maurier, famous as a writer, um, writer of Trilby and all sorts of things like that, but also a great graphic artist. And what it shows in case you can't read the small print, is the pater and mater familias sitting in front of their fireside in presumably London, talking to their daughter in Ceylon, Sri Lanka, by telephonoscope. This is 1878. The prospect of being able to talk and have a big, a full screen conversation with your nearest and dearest on the other side of the world really seemed entirely possible at the end of 1878. Why was that so? How was that so? Well, I'll come around to the answer to that a little bit later, but just remember that there's nothing new in multimedia. We still haven't really reached this point, have we? I don't think what we can do with our mobile phones is quite as good as that. Um, I'm um, going to talk about media, and one of the things we have to obviously reflect on is, you know, what is a medium? What do you mean by a medium? It's um, a concept that uh, has undergone a lot of shifts of meaning uh, and extensions, even in my lifetime. During the Renaissance era, it meant a middle course, or, interestingly, an intervening substance, something that came between. And one of the later uses given by the Oxford English Dictionary is an intermediate agency means instrument or channel. That, I think, will do very well for what we're talking about on the whole. There was also, of course, an offshoot use for those thought to be able to communicate with the dead, mediums acting as intermediaries or channels between this life and the next. But the idea of a medium, um, the idea of media studies began to heat up a great deal during the early 1960s, and that's thanks to the writings of this maverick Canadian scholar of modern English literature, Marshall McLuhan. Um, Marshall McLuhan was a perfectly respectable student of modernist poetry uh, until he got the media bug at some point in the 1940s. And I can still vividly remember discovering one of McLuhan's books. Uh, it was um, The Mechanical Bride, in fact, and the library stack as an undergraduate in Belfast and being riveted by McLuhan's witty deconstruction of advertising and popular culture. His book's subtitle was The Folklore of Industrial Man, first of his many remarkable books. Now, this was a, a very different approach to popular culture from that of our own Richard Hoggart. Richard Hoggart published The Uses of Literacy at the end of the 1950s, and this, if you like, was the English version of 
media studies, and I think the graphics says it all. Uh, the Uses of Literacy was not a very uplifting book, but it's a rather puritanical book, I think, which talks witheringly about comic strips, cheap, sensational literature, the kind of stuff that uh, youngsters grew up on in the leads that Richard Hoggart knew as a child. It's very different from the world conjured up by the covers, for instance, of McLuhan's books. And look at that wonderful um, strapline on the McLuhan book, Understanding Media. Most debated, the most important thinker, Newton, Darwin, Freud, Einstein, Pavlov. Well, nobody was saying that about poor old Richard Hoggart. Uh, we don't live in a culture, um, in Britain certainly, which goes to those sorts of extremes. My first job in life, which probably explains why I am where I am at the moment, was actually teaching the thoughts of Marshall McLuhan uh, as a young philosophy graduate uh, in the 1960s. So I feel I owe McLuhan a lot. He seemed to relish the imagery and the language of advertising with a kind of amused scepticism. And it was from a fusion of Hoggart's interest in the texture of everyday popular culture, because there's a lot to be said for Hoggart, of course, and McLuhan's rather higher level, very ambitious, often very erratic, uh, but very stimulating and very exciting approach to what media do to us. That's what formed the media studies that I grew up with. And around the 1960s, I attended some of Hoggart's seminars at the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies in Birmingham, and I was lucky enough to work with, in a very junior role, um, two of the other great figures in British media and cultural studies, Stuart Hall and Raymond Williams. So I mention these names to give you some sort of idea of what shaped my approach to media studies. It was fashionable to decry McLuhan for a long time. He was absolutely out of fashion, regarded as wrong about everything. But I am convinced that many of his key insights into the power of media were essentially right, even if his terminology was often rather extreme. When he said the medium is the message and then changed it to the medium is the massage, it was a typo that made him think of that. Somebody sent him a proof back with the E as an A and he thought, yes, that's right, media do massage us. That gave him that idea. This sort of approach, I think, has been very stimulating. And it's also sparked a new reappraisal of McLuhan's ideas, a kind of reinvention of McLuhan in the work of um, Jay Bolter and Richard Grusin, which I think is a very interesting and very important book. I very much recommend it to you if you don't know it. It's called Remediation, Understanding New Media. And it positions itself very clearly as taking McLuhan's ideas and applying them to new media. It came out in 99. It's become quite a standard work. There's a popular explanation of remediation. Basically, what Bolter and Grusin are saying, their opening example in the book, is that new media refashion, rework what older media did. They take the example of the desktop that we're familiar with from a computer. What is a computer desktop? It's a simulation, a remediation of a literal desktop that we might have on our old desks. And that process of updating, refashioning, is, is very much what our experience of new media has been for the last 20 or 30 years. I'm just going to mention one other key figure as a preliminary, and that is Friedrich Kittler. Kittler is much less well-known than any of the figures I've mentioned so far, which is a pity, I think. It says something about the way that modern thought circulates. Many more people have heard of French thinkers like Roland Barthes, um, Michel Foucault. Very few have heard of Hitler, but Hitler, Hitler, I think, is a very, very important figure in taking media studies in some different directions. He knew McLuhan's work extremely well. He died uh, about 10 years ago. But he was also very influenced by the pessimism about technology of the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. And Hitler's best-known book is called Gramophone, Film and Typewriter, it's a very good book. But what I'm going to refer to and return to at the very end is his essay, The City is a Medium, which I think is, is very much my theme this evening. So how can we explore the multimedia world of 
around about 1900. I'm going to confine myself to London, which is not any limitation, because London, of course, was very much at the heart of the 19th century media revolution. That was because of its size, its economic power, its industrial and scientific history. And by 1900, London was at the centre of the new technologies of all kinds. It had a population that was fascinated by these new technologies. But that has a history too, and I think we need to look back before we reach Hampstead Heath on a bank holiday around about 1900, which is that on that postcard, let us go back to the late 18th century. Let's go back to the very first occasion when moving pictures were advertised as an entertainment. This is the rather extraordinary device known as the Idafusicon. You can see it there. Um, with practice, you can learn how to say that and spell it with no trouble at all, but it looks a little strange at first. I've been practicing for a long time. We only have one actual picture of what the Idafusicon looked like in the 1780s, and that's it. It's a drawing. It's in the British Museum. Again, much, much reproduced. We have a number of handbills that advertise the Idafusicon. Um, uh, you can see there on the right, there are many of these. Um, what I'm interested in is the audience experience. And um, the audience experience, of course, is implicit in all of these media. And for instance, in this famous picture of, of the Idafusicon, well, the only picture of the Idafusicon, we've got some audience. Foreground interest, as you can see here. You've got somebody who's looking through something. What is he looking through? Sort of miniature telescope? An eyeglass of some kind? Or you've got two children, got a lady and a man and a woman who appear to be more interested in each other than in the screen. That image of a sort of bits of audience will recur for the next 150 years. People are always trying to put the audience in the picture without necessarily knowing what the audience's attitude or interests are. The uh, Ida Fusicon was created by Philippe de Lutherberg, who was a very, very successful painter who had deviated from painting into scenic effects um, at the Drury Lane Theatre. He worked for David Garrick, and he was famous for producing sensational settings, thunder, lightning, um, sound effects, brilliant uh, stage effects. And he decided to go one further and create the Idafusicon, which would put it all in a box and, in a sense, automate or frame the kind of experience that he was doing on stage. And that, I think, tells us something very interesting about the ambition. Several people have been active in recreating, trying to recreate the Idafusicon. Uh, one of these is Robert Poulter, who has created five Idafusicons. That's a picture at the bottom of one of the ones he's created for a museum in Germany. That's another image up there. And that is, of, over on the left, is what Robert Poulter's new model theatre version of the Idafusicon is like. There's another version in Australia which uses more, more technology. But let's try and put that into the climate of the times. The Idafusicon appears in the 1780s at the height of Romanticism in Britain. This is a time when painters, old-fashioned easel oil painters, are reaching out to achieve sublime effects in their canvases. And in fact, the Idafusicon attracted Gainsborough. There's Gainsborough down at the bottom. Uh, he was fascinated by it. He even came along and helped de Lutherberg, apparently, manipulate the Idafusicon from time to time. And he built his own view box, which you can still see. It's in the V&A, I think. Um, the view box had slides like that one on the top left created for it. And this is the kind of painting that de Lutherberg himself was making. This is his famous painting of Colebrookdale, the epicenter, the cradle of the Industrial Revolution up in Derbyshire. That belongs to the Science Museum in London, and they tell me it's their most, single most requested painting. It's perpetually being shown all over the world. If one painting sums up the Industrial Revolution, it's de Lutherberg's Colebrookdale. 
So he knew about effect, he knew about sensory effect already from his work in other media. But what he did in the Idefusicon in this was to put on a program of different items. And the most impressive of all, apparently, everyone writes about this who, who saw it, was Satan arraying his troops on the banks of a fiery lake with the raising of the Palace of Pandemonium. This comes from Paradise Lost. He takes a scene from Paradise Lost and he has Satan rising up, surveying his multitudes. Robert Poulter has remediated that in his version and it's very impressive indeed. So here we have a classic bit of remediation going on. Now, there are many different shows of all kinds after the Ida Fusicon. The Ida Fusicon had three seasons in central London in the late in 1780s. Uh, then the Lutherberg either got bored or moved on and actually he ended up as a faith healer, apparently. Uh, very successful and very popular faith healer. Um, Gainsborough died at the end of the 1780s and the Ida Fusicon goes into kind of abeyance for a time, although people remember it and keep trying to reinvent it. But there are many other shows going on in London, many, many others, many more than I can list with strange names. And interestingly, many of them are ringed around Leicester Square. Leicester Square becomes the kind of cradle of putting on sensational, spectacular shows. But one that is not in Leicester Square is Madame Tussaud's Waxworks, which, as you can see there, was always up around Baker Street, which it, where it still is, in fact. The reason I draw attention to that is because, of course, that's become a London institution. It's still very much with us. It's very popular. It's franchised. There are branches of Madame Tussauds all over the world. It was a waxworks created by a refugee from the French Revolution who had modelled the heads of those who were about to lose their heads in France when she came to London in search of a quieter life. But it did more than just display wax effigies. It put on tableau. And this is an extraordinary picture. I think it's an extraordinary picture if, if I tell you what it is. It's an engraving from a, a lost painting. It shows the Duke of Wellington looking at a tableau in Madame Tussauds of Napoleon on his deathbed. The Duke of Wellington, who lived on to a ripe old age, had a season ticket to Madame Tussauds. He was a regular visitor. In fact, he had more than a season ticket. He had a special arrangement that when they put on the new exhibit, he got a note to say, come and see it. He wasn't alone in that, by the way. Uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were also avid followers of Madame Tussauds and would have private visits uh, to that and to many other shows. But the sight of Wellington looking at his old adversary, the man on whose defeat his fame rested, really, I think, strikes a very sort of eerie note almost. Why would Wellington, as an elderly man, have been so fascinated to go and see Napoleon, an effigy of Napoleon. This is telling us something. I'm not quite sure what, but it's definitely telling us something. Uh, we could explore it if we had more time. This is the beginning of the era of large screen entertainment in London in the 1790s, 1792, 1793. It's the opening of the panorama, Robert Barker's panorama, which stood on the corner of Leicester Square. The Audifusicon, by the way, was in Lyle Street. And if you know Leicester Square, there's a little connecting street, uh, Leicester Place, which connects the northeast corner of Leicester Square with Lyle Street. Just go up there and you're in Audifusicon land. This is a very valuable, to me, very valuable painting, because it shows the entrance to the panorama. And if you go to that street that leads off to the right of uh, Leicester Square, the top of right Leicester Square, which is a big cinema here, you can still see that entrance. That entrance still exists. You can find it as a piece of media archaeology. It leads into a French cultural centre because where the panorama once stood has become a French church, a circular church, which I believe was built on the exact ground plan of the panorama. But more important, that's the outside of the panorama. There, there's a big drum. Much more important is what was it like inside. We have no panoramas left in Britain, so it's impossible 
to see a panorama in Britain, um, you have to go to, to Holland or to Canada or to, to the Gettysburg uh, panorama in, near Atlanta in America. There are a lot of panoramas, but none of them in Britain. That is a very good representation of what it's like to be inside the viewing platform of a panorama. It's uh, an extraordinary experience. You really do feel that you're in a landscape. I've been to the panorama in Canada, St. Anne de Beaupre, which is Jerusalem on the day of Christ's crucifixion, and it's an extraordinary experience. They even give you, well, they rent you binoculars that you can take a closer look. It's a, a very immersive experience. Panoramas became very popular in London from 1800 onwards. They start springing up, and they start springing up all over the world. And very soon, in the 1820s, moving panoramas become extremely fashionable. This is a, a rather wonderful book by my friend Erki Hutamo, who has done a tremendous amount of research to uh, rediscover this lost medium, the moving panorama. Almost none of these exist any longer, but he has found the documentation that allows us to imagine what they once were. And one of the most impressive of those was one of the absolute sensations of London in the mid-19th century. If you look at any guidebook for people visiting London in the 1850s, 40s, 50s, they will say, be absolutely sure not to miss Albert Smith's Ascent of Mont Blanc. He, um, Albert Smith had really climbed Mont Blanc, um, pioneer figure of climbing. Um, he turned it into a show, which he gave at the Egyptian Hall in London. He gave the show about 2,000 times. Something like 800,000 people are reckoned to have attended Smith's Ascent of Mont Blanc. And he used a moving panorama for the journey to the, the bottom of Mont Blanc you have a, a lateral panorama. And then for the ascent itself, he had a vertical panorama. So this was quite a sophisticated show using moving roller images. Apparently it was very funny. Uh, and you absolutely were carried along by the sheer um, ebullience of Smith's performance. Now, it wasn't cheap. It cost three shillings, like the panorama. So it was presumably for a fairly select audience, but it was extremely popular for those who had the leisure and the curiosity and a taste for novelty, as well as travel. And of course, this is exactly the moment, and I'm sure you're thinking already, when, of course, the business of travel, the modern business of travel, is packaged by Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook, who starts to do um, excursions in the 1840s, then in the 1850s, he has, makes a fortune out of leading tours to the Holy Land and to Egypt. He, takes, he organizes transport to the Great Exhibition in London in 1851. And here you have just a, a reminder of the scale of Cook's tours, Cook's excursions. But we're not going to go down that route for the moment. I will come back to that if you come along to my next lecture about the stereograph. Let's just stay with the panorama. There were many panoramas built in London. One of the most impressive, I think, was the Colosseum in Regent's Park. A, a guidebook to Regent's Park says, do not miss the Colosseum. There are pages of description of what you, the wonders that you can see inside. As you can see, it's a rather grand building. It's actually built um, as a direct imitation of the Pantheon in Rome. And there are detailed descriptions in guidebooks of what you could actually see in the various circular paintings that were displayed in it. But it was opened originally to display what was considered the biggest painting in the world, the Panorama of London, by Thomas Horner. Thomas Horner went to the top of St Paul's, built a special observation post, shack, they call it here, on top of St Paul's, and he created this unbelievable picture of, St. Paul, of London as seen from the top of St. Paul's. This apparently was one of the wonders of the age and it, it showed for a very long time indeed. It was widely praised and talked about. But while the panorama was packing in tens, hundreds of thousands of viewers for an immersive big screen experience, which is what it is really, 
a new variation on the panorama had also opened in the 1820s, and that's the diorama. Now, what is a diorama? A diorama is a translucent screen, a scrim, I think stage people would say, which, you, which has painting, a painted scene on it, but which can be lit from behind from different angles in different ways. So at the centre of the diorama experience, an audience, a seated audience, is sitting looking at a screen with a man who is busy manipulating the change of scene. And this shows you that, in fact, the audience sitting on these seats is moved from one viewing position to another, back and to and fro. So this offers the possibility of going on a kind of journey. Typically, a diorama show would show you a day scene and then the same scene at night. It might show you a spectacular sunset. There are many different scenes in the repertoire of the diorama. The main diorama in London was on Oxford Street. If you go to Marks and Spencer's in the Pantheon building, uh, that's the building that was occupied by the diorama. That was the first version of the Pantheon building. You can see it there in the top image. And interestingly, dioramas became fashionable meeting places. They developed coffee shops, restaurants, cafes. They even used as the background for fashion plate illustrations. One of the reasons why we have a lot of pictures of the, the, the foyers of the diorama is because they appeared in fashion uh, illustration. I mentioned the um, Egyptian Hall, uh, which was on Piccadilly. Uh, we, it doesn't exist any longer. It was demolished in 1905. Egyptian Hall was... Um, it ran from 1812 until 1905. For much of its career, it was billed as England's home of mystery. What you see in this photograph is one of its very later versions, before it was demolished, when it had become the, the home of improved animated photographs. Like many of these entertainment venues, it went over to showing predominantly moving pictures uh, around about the end of the 1890s, the beginning of the 1900s. So it's, it's a process of transition. Moving pictures are brought in to update a show which has been running already for many decades because they're the latest thing. They're what people want to see. But before that, the Egyptian Hall had hosted um, Albert Smith's Ascent of Mont Blanc. It had hosted Napoleon's Carriage, uh, brought over to England after his defeat at Waterloo. Many, many, many other uh, exhibitions devoted to the wonders of Mexico, an enormous repertoire of subjects. And for 30 years, the um, organiser of its events was Neville Maskin, Maskelin, one of the great showman conjurers, famous for his displays of, of uh, sleight of hand. Over on Regent Street, near Oxford Circus, was another remarkable institution of 19th century London, the Royal Polytechnic Institution. Uh, the Royal Polytechnic was a strange uh, concept. Uh, it was a building inside which were demonstrated um, new scientific and technological developments. Uh, photography got its launch in London. There was a photographer's studio. There was an electric railway as the electricity became the new medium. Uh, there were many kinds of there were displays projected from a giant microscope that was extremely popular in the main hall of the Royal Polytechnic. And there were dissolving views. Uh, the um, Polyte Royal Polytechnic's dissolving views were extremely famous. They were what you went to at Christmas, especially. Um, it was considered to be a great treat. You would take the the sons, daughters, nephews, etc., along to the Royal Polytechnic for a slap-up magic lantern show. The Royal Polytechnic's lantern slides were enormous, that size, beautifully hand-painted, colour, of course, and they dissolved one into another. So really it was like, once again, just like the Ida Fusicon, we were seeing dissolving, moving pictures in colour with music. It was also where the great stage illusion, Pepper's Ghost, 
was created by the curator of the Royal Polytechnic, uh, Pepper, John Pepper. And I've touched on it, but we should give it its due. Of course, the biggest show of all in many ways, which was unique to London and started something which is still with us today, was the Great Exhibition of 1851. And not just the contents of the Great Exhibition, but the building. The building itself was, in many ways, the most impressive thing about the Great Exhibition. This giant palace uh, designed by a man who'd been the head gardener in, in Derbyshire, um, Joseph Paxton, built a gigantic structure out of iron and glass, which housed the Great Exhibition. And there, that is the outside of it, as it were, and that's the inside. People came from all over the world to see it. No one was unimpressed. Um, millions upon millions of visitors attended during the run of the exhibition. They came from all over Britain. There are cartoons that show Manchester empty because everyone's gone to London to see the great exhibition. Uh, visitors came from Russia. It left a very deep mark in Russia. Dostoevsky wrote about it. Everybody wrote about it because it was one of the wonders of the age. When it um, had to move from Hyde Park, the entire structure was taken down and re-erected in Crystal Palace, in what became Crystal Palace. It's got its name from having the Great Exhibition building reconstructed, and that stayed there until the 1930s when it burned down. But Leicester Square was also still in the picture. And uh, every time I stand in Leicester Square talking about its media archaeology, I try to I close my eyes and try and imagine what it would have been like if Wilde's great globe was still there, right in the centre of the square. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Look at Leicester Square today and ask yourself, how on earth was there room for something on that scale? Wilde had proposed to the Great Exhibition curators that he would build this giant sphere in Hyde Park. They'd said no. He said, right, I'll do it anyway. So he did a deal to construct this building in the centre of Leicester Square, which stood for over 10 years. It had an in interior walkways modelled on the panorama. It was effectively the earth turned inside out. It was perfectly to scale, and you were inspecting a giant globe of the earth. He was a map maker by trade, by profession, but it was turned, as it were, towards you, a sort of concave version of the earth with many galleries alongside it. And, of course, explanations. It had the book of words that accompanied the show. It was pulled down eventually um, amidst much acrimony in, in the uh, 1860s. And last, in this tour of the shows of London that, that created this sort of sense of media and spectacle, there's Earl's Court and Olympia. I think we always tend to, often tend to leave out of these, these uh, things. Earl's Court was opened in its modern-ish form in the 1880s. That's an aerial view of it at the time when its biggest success is Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. This was the biggest touring show in the world. It brought hundreds, if not thousands, of performers to Earl's Court and it packed in enormous numbers of visitors. Queen Victoria was a fan. She actually rode in the Deadwood stage, apparently. Um, she was very intrigued. She loved meeting Buffalo Bill. She loved seeing all the indigenous people that he brought with him. And this really put Earl's Court on the map. And next door to Earl's Court in Olympia, during another of these great shows, the Empire of India show, because they did a whole series of shows based on different national cultures, a young electrician called Robert Paul um, installed some kinetoscopes and saw how people queued to look at the kinetoscope. And that gave him the idea which would lead to moving pictures on the screen. But the idea of the kinetoscope actually doesn't start with Robert Paul. It starts with Thomas Edison. Um, Edison is an extremely important protean figure. Um, I offer you two photos of the many, many, many images of Edison. This is Matthew Brady, the great early American photographer who photographed the Civil War. This is Matthew Brady's very formal posed photograph of the young um, Thomas Edison. 
relatively young, he's just created the first version of the phonograph. That's another kind of picture, a newspaper picture, of uh, Edison <laughs> at the close of five days and nights of continued work in perfecting the early wax cylinder type of phonograph, 1888. So Edison's breakthrough, what makes Edison a world celebrity, is the phonograph, which he created at the end of 1887 and launched on the world in 1888. That's the reason why Punch could show at the end of uh, 1878 the telephonoscope in that cartoon that I showed you right at the beginning because Edison's phonograph had taken the world by storm. It was the, the most famous single invention of the mid-century, or the later century. But nobody really knew what it was for. This, is, this tells us something very important about new media. When they are created, often people are not quite sure what they're for. A modern example of that would be the tablet, the little tablet computer. I'm sure some of you can remember when tablets were first uh, put on the market. People said, well, yes, it's very nice, but what's it for? And then they discovered the uses of a tablet, and they were not necessarily what the creators of the tablet had thought of. This was Edison's list of what he thought a phonograph would be good for. It's quite educational, um, as you can see. Uh, he's thinking very much about dictation. And in fact, the, the Edison company stayed in the business of dictating machines, wax cylinder dictating machines, right into, well into the 20th century. Now, this was the last incarnation of the original phonograph to disappear. But some of them are really quite wonderful. Uh, speaking clocks, the preservation of languages that are about to become extinct, educational purposes, yes, connecting with the telephone. Telephone was a very new invention in itself, but already people could see the problem. What if somebody phoned when you weren't in? Answer, you can put a phonograph and it will record the message. So right at the beginning, these two early media come together with a glimpse of what, in fact, will be useful. Edison's phonograph spread out across the world. It was talked about everywhere. It enters fiction, it enters poetry even. Um, it becomes cheaper, it gets better. The early Edison tinfoil phonographs were terrible. The sound quality was absolutely appalling. So there was no question of a very refined recording. But Edison had some interesting collaborators and um, uh, George uh, Gouraud, Colonel Gouraud, was his agent on earth in Britain a very well-connected man who used to throw dinner parties and soirees and introduce the phonograph to the cream of British society. And this is one of his letters in 1888, a phonogram to Edison. Dear Edison, um, I'm sending you a recording of an interesting and incredible evening, uh, introducing a few friends who have honoured me this evening by their presence here. And he sends Edison a recording of people from round the table. I'm going to play you the most famous of these early, that's Colonel, Colonel Gouraud, uh, who appeared, of course, in Vanity Fair, as all the best people would. Uh, let me play you one of his early recordings. Right, here we go. That's one of the, the cherished early recordings. There is actually a, a recording of Queen Victoria, which has only relatively recently been found, who was also fascinated by the phonograph in, in you know, her considerably old age. Um, a friend of mine devoted uh, many, many years searching for the lost recording of Queen Victoria and published his book saying, it's lost, but it has been found. Never say that anything is utterly lost. 
Browning died uh, less than a year after that recording was made. And the Browning Society, which was a very big society, Browning had an enormous following uh, at this point in, in um, the 1880s, gathered for the first anniversary of his death, and they sat and listened to this recording. <laughs> this is a report from the Times of them listening to um, the recording of him speaking from beyond the grave, as it were. While well, in breathless silence, the little awed group stood round the phonograph. Robert Browning's familiar and cheery voice suddenly exclaimed, Ready! So here we have an interesting case in point of, as it were, the capacity of new media to collapse time and space and to create a sense of intimacy with the past, certainly with the past, possibly with the future. But... Edison's phonograph was the first great invention that launched the modern media revolution. The second was the kinetoscope. And the kinetoscope, which he launched uh, at the beginning of the 1890s, was essentially an attempt, the way he put it was, it was an attempt to do for the eye what the phonograph had done for the ear. So Edison was being very much guided by the fact that in recording sound, he had preserved pieces of speech, sound. He, could he preserve stretches of visual imagery in the same way. Very difficult to do. Took years of development. Much of the work was done by William Kennedy Laurie Dickinson, a Scots Frenchman who worked for Edison. But the result, eventually, in about 1891-92, was the kinetoscope. Um, the second absolutely transformative uh, medium, new medium, created by Edison. Um, that's what a kinetoscope looks like on the right. It's a, it's a wooden cabinet with a viewing point that you peer into. We don't have many photographs of what the early um, parlours, the kinetoscope parlours, looked like. There's one at the bottom there. There are only about a dozen altogether. They're almost all American. We have no photographs of the interior of an English kinetoscope parlour. That's a rather, I think, fanciful uh, drawing up top there of a New York one. But what we do have, and this is very recent, I only got this picture uh, earlier this year, we actually do now know where the very first Edison kinetoscope parlour appeared in London. It was on the Strand. I'm very proud of this photo. Edison's kinetoscope, I hope you can read it from there, on the Strand, next to the Adelphi Theatre, as it then was, by... Within a year, maybe 15 months, there were at least 10 kinetoscope parlours around London. On Oxford Street, one, maybe two. In the city, Broad Street, and all sorts of places, they kept popping up like mushrooms. There was even a trade in uh, counterfeit um, kinetoscopes, some of which were made by Robert Paul, the young man who um, exhibited at, the, at Olympia. Um, a book is coming out, uh, it's going to be published next week, which talks about the kinetoscope in Britain, a uh, result of a lot of research by two, two early media historians, which I think will show that the kinetoscope was a very big deal indeed from 1894 through 95 until 96. It was short-lived, but extremely important. And uh, there we have a kinetoscope parlour, which is also featuring the Phonograph, because linking the phonograph and the kinetoscope was obviously Edison's goal, and he did succeed in doing it to a certain extent. There were phonograph parlours where you could go in and play a piece of music or speech, you paid your money, and you got to hear what was on it. What did the kinetoscope look like, you're wondering? If you haven't seen the kinetoscope, I'm going to show you a kinetoscope loop uh, reconstituted by the Library of Congress in America very nicely. Oops done too. So this is Annabelle dancing. This is Miss Annabelle Moore performing her famous butterfly dance. She was, she did two, about two of these or maybe three of them for the kinetoscopes and she became incredibly famous as a result of it. Uh, when she was found speeding on her bicycle on Broadway. She made the New York Times because she was famous for having appeared in 
kinetoscope loops. This is a very early example of being, being very famous for appearing in motion on the screen. And this, for those who are interested, is the interior of the kinetoscope. It's a rather complicated machine. It was electrically driven, which was a problem because, of course, there were no dependable supplies of electricity, so you had to have batteries to power the machine. And it, it basically, it's like a sort of large intestine. It has an enormous amount of celluloid wound inside it on rollers, which um, move very, very high speed, 40 frames per second, much faster than film does today. The kinetoscope inspired two inventors, or three to be precise. Two of them were the Lumiere brothers. They saw the kinetoscope, they thought they could improve on it, and they produced the cinematograph. You see that picturing of the audience for the early cinematograph there in a typical Lumiere poster. The other person that they inspired was Robert Paul, uh, the young electrician that I've mentioned. And I'll show you one of Robert Paul's films in a moment. But basically, by March 1896, the two biggest music halls in London, the Empire on the left, the north of Leicester Square, and the Alhambra on the uh, east of Leicester Square, where the Odeon Leicester Square stands today, were both featuring moving pictures. The Lumieres were in the Empire. Robert Paul had been contracted at high speed, not to be outdone, to show his moving pictures in the Alhambra. This was a very big business indeed. That is young Robert Paul when he was, had just made, had just made a film of the Derby uh, in June 1896. And I'm going to show you that Derby um, with uh, a modern but accurate musical accompaniment. I say accurate, that comes from a DVD that I made for the British Film Institute some years ago. And I asked the pianist, Stephen Horne, we know exactly what was played when the film was shown at the Alhambra uh, on the night after the race. They played God Bless the Prince of Wales because the derby had been won by the Prince of Wales horse, Persimmon. And the Prince of Wales, Edward, came along to see the film too, not that night, but later. We know that they played God Bless the Prince of Wales and the film was encored three times. So I asked Stephen if he could do the honours when we were recording it. That's important because that's one of the earliest accounts we have of audience response to moving pictures on the screen. It was a very big event. Uh, all the newspapers reported it. They gave pretty detailed accounts of just what the audience did. Paul appeared on stage, took a bow, etc. We actually know what happened. Now this is a very different case 1898, Paul has become one of the most important producers of moving pictures by this time in Britain, producing a quarter of all the moving pictures that are on sale. He's filming the launch of the latest battleship, HMS Albion. So are three other companies. It's expected to be a big event. It's on the Thames at Blackwall. The ship slides into the water, but it sweeps away some of the scaffolding and plunges some hundreds of people into the water. Paul continues to film because his camera is electric. He's busy rescuing people. He rescues 25 people on, from his boat. But he's taken to task in a number of newspapers for callously show, allowing the film to be shown in a music hall. He says he's only doing it to raise money for the, those affected. And that's the music hall, a, a modern photo of the music hall that he showed his film in. And we have a very interesting account so I'm just going to read you quickly of what happened on that occasion. The whole audience in the music hall rose with... I'll play you the film as, as we show you the film. This is the film that was being shown. The whole audience rose with bared heads as the drama of death passed before them. At the close, 
with the orchestra playing rocked in the cradle of the deep. There was scarcely a dry eye amongst the silent audience. So I think that's probably Robert Paul's wife, too, actually appearing in shot accidentally, as it were. But this is his motor launch whizzing down the river, and you'll see the confusion of people plunged into the water in just a moment. But I find the audience, the account of the audience response really interesting because, again, what we see is that the moving image on screen had the power to convince the audience that they were taking part in a solemn memorial to those who had been killed. Something like 35 people lost their lives in the water. So th that, that's the scene of people in the water, people trying to save those who are uh, uh, swimming around helplessly and so forth. So you can see that from these two pieces of audience response, we begin to get a sense of typical new forms of spectator engagement. We're beginning to see the birth, if you like, of um, a kind of audiencehood that we're more familiar with in front of a screen with moving images and sounds. What I've tried to do is to show you the build-up to that, the lead-up to it. Um, the last point I want to make is, and the reason why I've got a few little objects sitting beside me here, is to emphasise that although I've talked a lot about large, impressive media, panoramas, dioramas, etc., um, small media are an important part of the media revolution of 1900. This is one called the filoscope. The filoscope is very small, and basically it allows you to have a, a hand, a pocket viewer, which allows you to see a film. You can see one being demonstrated there. We only have some of Robert Paul's films because they exist in filoscope form and can be put back into moving picture form. And all of the media that I've talked about had miniature forms. Um, this is a toy magic lantern, for instance. Just took a candle. This is a polyorama, which is a miniature version of the diorama, which allows you to have your own postcard-sized diorama images. And this is, of course, the biggest medium of them all, uh, in the mid-19th century, the stereoscope. And my next talk uh, in February is going to be about, uh, as I usually describe it, the, the way that stereoscopy has been written out of the history of photography, when in fact it was the way that most people first encountered photography in the, um, in the, from the 1860s onwards. And that, of course, is another very important part of it. That's, that's my mother's brownie camera. When George Eastman launched the brownie, at the end of the 19th century, he started a revolution which, of course, made its buyers um, not just consumers, but prosumers. There were people who produced their own images and became used to the process of producing images as well as consuming images, an extremely important part of this media revolution that I'm evoking. But I've run out of time, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you.